Good morning, Culture Surfing listeners. This is Lance Robertson, back with another episode this week. I know we just released one yesterday, uh, but this is a special episode, being that I've had this gentleman in my scope for quite some time. Uh, <clears throat> national NBA writer for the Washington Post, one of the best uh, takesmen in podcast industry right now with the greatest of all talk podcasts, as well as an author, I assume, hopefully soon, an award-winning author for his bubble ball book, and that is Ben Golliver. How's it going, man? It's going very well, Lance. I feel like, you know, our heads are on tilt right now. We had the Celtics eliminated, followed by Danny Ainge's, uh, you know, retirement, resignation, Brad Stevens' promotion. The Lakers are in shambles. Uh, Damian Lillard's going for 55 and setting records with the three-pointers and a loss. Joel Embiid is injured. I mean, is there enough going on for us today or what? You probably have to do an episode every day this week, man. Yeah, I, I was afraid of that, man. And I was like, man, there's so much national news. I was like, Ben's probably stuck in a whirlwind somewhere. I'm probably not going to be able to get him out of the vortex. But I'm really happy that you come on in, man. Uh, it's very much appreciated. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And I appreciate that uh, that introduction. Look, any chance to sell my book, Bubble Ball? I'm there, Lance. You know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured much, man. Uh, maybe we can get the merch, too. I, I still got to get my Greatest of All Talk hoodie, man. But we'll, we'll talk later about that. Uh, so speaking of the bubble, uh, the bubble ball book, man, I, I, I've read, I'd say 30% of it. And actually by reading, I mean, I'm lazy and I got the audiobook version. I have one quick question. Uh, the gentleman reading the book has kind of the same delivery as you do. Is that you, but you like slowed the speed down or, or sped it up or. Yeah, no, you're killing me off the top here, man. For some reason, when they went to Audible, there was like an audio issue. And so they've been in the process of fixing that for way too long. Um, if you give it like a week, it'll be fixed. But it, it kind of, they kind of made me seem like I had too much sugar intake in the morning. And I'm like, my voice is all lilty. So I don't know how that happened. Trust me, it's been absolutely grinding my gears for the last uh, couple of weeks as they've been trying to fix this thing. But if you go to like Google Play or the other ones, it will have my normal voice. You know, it, it was a real process to read that thing. Uh, it took about 12 hours. And yeah, for there's a few chapters there on the Audible one that they just sound like I'm too hyped up. Like I got to, you know, a couple elephant ears at the amusement park and I just haven't wound down yet. Yeah, I mean, for the normal person, I'm sure that that would make them sick of their voice. But I don't know, Golf, or something about you. I, I think that you're you're just fine with it, man. But... <laughs> I've spoke with a couple of authors on this pod in the last couple months, and I always so curious because I know from what I've heard from from many authors that it's just a very taxing thing to write a book and to get ready to write a book. So who or what was your biggest inspiration in the Bubble Ball book? It was just the history that was taking place in front of us in 2020. I mean, it was, you know, I've been covering the NBA since 2007, and it was just clear like this is a really, really important year. You're looking at billions of dollars lost for the league. You're looking at a shutdown in the middle of the season. You're looking at a crazy comeback plan that, you know, everyone's saying they're going to Disney World. What are you talking about in the middle of a pandemic? And then the whole thing works perfectly. Not a single person gets sick. And LeBron James, one of the biggest stars in the sports history, winds up winning his fourth title. I mean, that kind of story almost wrote itself and inspired itself. And so for me... I just got lucky. You know, I was one of the guys who had a, a, you know, Willy Wonka's basketball factory golden ticket. You know, I, I got in, there was very few media members able to live in and work in that bubble. I was there for 93 days, 92 nights, and just kind of up close and personal sitting in these empty arenas, watching every single one of these games that I possibly could, you know, from the second round on, and we're about to get to the second round of this year's playoffs. 
um, I was able to attend every single playoff game from the second round on. So you think about in a normal year, like right now I'm stuck in LA, so I can even actually watch the Lakers and the Clippers, you know, pretty easily, but I can't get out to that Celtic series when they're flaming out. Right. I can't get down to the, you know, Milwaukee Bucks sweeping the Miami Heat out of the playoffs. I mean, there's just no way for me to cover that in person logistically. And so it was such a rare opportunity as a reporter to get, you know, up close and personal with all of the league stars who were down there. And uh, that's why I wanted to write the book, because, you know, to me, we're always going to remember 2020, all of us. It's going to be one of those years that we look back on, probably not super fondly for most of us. Um, but I wanted it to be a time capsule for future generations of fans who are saying, well, what happened? How did they save this season? You know, what what was involved? Who were the key players? You know, how did LeBron win his title? I try to answer all those questions. So, Ben, obviously, as I mentioned, like the taxing part of writing a book and then still balancing out your journalist uh, duties. How did you balance that out? Like, and have to deal with the mental stuff with, uh, you know, living in a bubble, getting tested every day. No, it was really hard. You know, I, and I've been open about this. The players who were talking about the mental health impacts, they were right on the money and I would vouch for them completely. I mean, we heard LeBron, Paul George, Danny Green, kind of the list goes on and on of guys who talked about it in different ways. You know, some people just said they missed their family. You know, Danny Green was campaigning to have pets in the bubble. He wanted to bring his dog. You know, Paul George was talking about feeling depressed and, and uh, you know, anxious and for me, you know, when I was down there, uh, I went in with my eyes wide open. I mean, I talked to a whole bunch of doctors, including a psychiatrist about like, hey, what am I about to get into? I didn't want to be signing myself up for something that would really screw me up. And, you know, during the three months that I was there, I put on weight. I slept terribly. Uh, my anxiety was up. My isolation feelings from the outside world were really strong. You know, it felt like we were on a foreign planet at times. Those were all really challenging things. And, and at the same time, you're just working nonstop and, and there's the stress of the playoffs. And so for me, as a writer, if that was the impacts on me, I can only imagine the impacts on the players who are actually dealing with the stress of getting their bodies ready to play and then all the criticism that comes with, you know, good performances or bad performances. So, um, you know, it was very challenging. Uh, like I said, I, I went in there with kind of a game plan of like pace yourself, you know, try not to burn out early. Remember, you're going to be there for three months and um, you know, obviously we, we had certain stories that we wanted to hit at various points along the way, uh, but it was, you know, it was a marathon. There's really no way around it. And then, you know, turning right back around, leaving the bubble, taking one week off and then diving into writing the book. Uh, I mean, that was another marathon in and of itself. So, uh, you know, part of the reason why I'm so excited to to talk about the book is because it's done, you know, it's in the rear view. And I, you know, I feel like that big feeling of accomplishment having made it through. Yeah. I, I just want to say again, congratulations on, on getting that book out. Uh, I, I know that a lot of people say print is dead, but, you know, with you, Mirren Fader, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of great books, especially like NBA books uh, being written. So and I think really yours is, yeah, it talks about the NBA, but I think it encompasses a lot more than that, you know, on, on a bigger scale. But uh, you were talking about pretty much how intimate it was being able to go all to those games and being up close and personal. And then not to mention that there's not really a crowd, so you can hear everything the players uh, say, which is very rare. Um, with that said, was there a player that you may be before the bubble, before you were in that, you know, little capsule of an arena uh, that you maybe thought different of? And then when you got out of it, your narrative changed? Well, I'm not sure my my opinion of him completely changed, but it definitely added layers. And I would just start with LeBron. I mean, he's always been kind of the centerpiece of this league since I started, um, you know, really covering it on a national level in 2010 when I went to CBS. And 
part of the reason why I got hired there is because there was so much interest around the decision. It was like, all right, well, we know this is going to be a player empowerment, free agency driven league from now on. So we need to hire new writers to kind of handle those types of things. And so I've always kind of kept a very close eye on LeBron over the course of the last 10 years. I mean, I covered the finals. I think he was what in eight straight finals. I mean, I covered every single one of them and, you know, to see him up close where, you know, he's living kind of a similar lifestyle to the rest of us where, you know, they're all casual, um, you know, going back and forth in their hotel rooms. He's staying in a Disney hotel room, just like everybody else. Now, granted his was nicer for sure, nicer than mine, but, uh, um, you know, he's still stuck without the mansion and the, you know, 12 car garage and all the other stuff you get when you're, you know, worth, you know, potentially billions of dollars at this point. And, you know, to me, it was just the commitment day to day, not only to the game, but the off court stuff as well. You mentioned how this book is about more than basketball. I mean, the social justice aspect, the public health aspect, the financial aspect, all of those came through and, and LeBron really touched on all those points, but especially the social justice piece. I mean, Game after game, he was delivering very carefully thought out statements on all sorts of subjects, gun control, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, the presidential election, Donald Trump. I mean, the list goes on police brutality, right? The list goes on. And, you know, he was doing this again with uh, the burden of carrying a team to a title, you know, and I think that usually when people get, uh, you know, really busy at work, some of that other stuff goes by the wayside, right? Whatever your hobbies are, your, your interests you know, you, you tend to block those out and just focus on the task at hand. And for him, he was just doing it all effortlessly. It just felt like he was juggling so many balls simultaneously the entire time they were there. And of course, they ran off a, a 16 and five record through the postseason. So to me, it was just crazy to watch him up close, how he prepared for games, meditating, sitting on the sidelines, you know, getting himself in these deep breathing exercises, just trying to prepare himself for the marathon and he said time and again afterwards like he almost has like ptsd from the bubble because he was separated from his kids um his wife wasn't with him for the first half of the bubble i mean he didn't have a lot of the support staff people who usually travel with him his agent rich paul his close friend wasn't able to kind of be down there um until the you know the, the title celebration basically so for him i'm sure he was doing all of these things while also feeling like a fish out of the water it was you know it was just an incredible experience and he wasn't the only one i mean jimmy butler had a phenomenal bubble jamal murray you know the list goes on and on of guys who really kind of changed their reputation or enhanced their reputation while they were down there but to me i always say the number one person that that's going to be remembered from this bubble is lebron by a mile yeah uh, i'm kind of surprised by your answer but then again i can res- i definitely respect it because as we know, LeBron has generational money. He didn't have to go down there. He could have just stayed, you know, at, with his family. But I'm sure, obviously, the championship, you know, he wanted to win that. But also, he probably knew what it meant for the league if he didn't go. Like, if, if LeBron wasn't in the bubble, I'm not going to say it wouldn't count or wouldn't matter. But, I mean, we all know the ratings would be terrible. So, that yeah, I guess it means a lot. Yeah, well, we, we heard we heard what Patrick Beverly said on that point. He says, look, if LeBron's going, we're all going, right? And when there was that uh, the protest in the middle of it um, involving um, you know, the Bucks and, and everything else, you know, the whole question was, well, look, if LeBron and the Lakers leave, everybody's probably leaving, right? And so I do think he was kind of uh, inextricably linked to the entire experience. But I think he's also very shrewd from a financial standpoint. Look, if the players had left uh, or if they had decided not to go, the owners would have ripped up the collective bargaining agreement and they would have been at ground zero, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, needing to renegotiate all these contracts. And, you know, you saw as soon as the bubble was over, LeBron signed a long-term extension with the Lakers. He locked up his financial security 
So did Anthony Davis. I think it's a really smart move when you're in a pandemic and you don't know where the league's finances are going to go to kind of make sure that you're taken care of. Giannis did the same thing early, right? So um, I, I think from that standpoint, it's important to remember the bubble was an exercise in pragmatism too, right? I mean, it was goofy that they're down there in Disney World and players are fishing and going on these boating trips and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there was like a real uh, whimsical element to the whole thing, right? But at the same time, I mean, dollars and cents were driving an awful lot of this. And LeBron had a lot to gain. Look, you know, if they don't finish that season, he's stuck on three titles. We see how the Lakers are struggling this year. He's chasing Mike. I mean, that's what been the story of, of his career here for the last 10 years at least. Every ring counts for him so much more than it does for the average player. And he was able to get number four. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to talk about uh, Chase and Mike with uh, with the Phoenix Suns Lakers talk, but that, that'll be in a bit. Uh, so <laughs> I know it's crazy because you just came out with this book recently, but it's been so good. And I, I just want to know, like, are you thinking of writing another book or are you already in the process of, an, of writing another book? Or are you kind of just going to wait and and see how you feel like five years from now? No, I'm thinking about catching my breath. I'll say that. I mean, you know, Brad Stevens even said, I think today there was a report saying that he was feeling worn down from coaching after the bubble. Man, I, I can feel his pain for sure. You know, I, I think a lot of people still have that post-bubble hangover. And so for me, I'm looking ahead to just covering this playoffs in as much detail as possible. And, you know, I, I kind of always say, like, I've been pretty lucky. Like, things just keep falling in my lap. I'm sort of like Forrest Gump. You know, I just kind of randomly show up in the right place. And that's kind of how this book project came together. Honestly, I had no grand idea of writing it before I went down there. So um, I think probably what's going to happen is I'm just going to wander around in the wilderness for the next couple of years and, and hopefully another one will fall in my lap. But it was a really exciting and fun process. I, I recommend to any writer who's interested in doing it, to, you know, if you've got the right topic, you know, push yourself, challenge yourself. It will take you to places you've never been just, you know, intellectually and, and from a focus standpoint. But uh, no, man, I'm, uh, I'm happy to catch my breath these days. All right. Well, good. Cause, uh, we need as much energy on the, on the greatest of all talk pa- uh, podcast as possible, man. Speaking of energy, <laughs> this Lakers sun series, although I think it's going to go seven games, it is the most like lopsided potential game seven, uh, series that I've, I've seen in quite some time. Uh, I really like to just call it the, the series of the hobbled every other game is like the injury report is like riddled with stars it's like uh, Chris Paul is Mr. Potato Head. He's just losing all his limbs every game. He's going to the locker room. <laughs> Obviously, AD is AD. And LeBron, I mean, ever since the groin injury a couple years ago, it's, it seems like he's getting hit with, with all kind of stuff as well. Uh, what is your take? I know a lot of people pick the Lakers to win the whole thing or at least get to you know the championship uh, round. But what's your take on this series? Do you still think Lakers can take it? Well, look, I don't know if it's going seven. I'll say that. I mean, watching the Anthony Davis injury, the groin strain at Staples Center, I mean, that felt like a funeral. I mean, it just sucked all the air out of the building. The crowd lost all hope. I mean, they had an 11-point lead in that second quarter, I think, and they wound up getting down by as many as 18. And you saw game five. I mean, it wasn't even competitive. You know, Phoenix ran away with it completely. So I think the Lakers are in big, big trouble here. There's kind of no way around that. Um, I think that his absence shows how important he is not only to the Lakers offense, because he was really carrying a lot of the scoring load, you know, early in this series. And, um, you know, he was also just, you know, from a matchup standpoint, the toughest guy, I think for the, the, uh, Suns to deal with, you saw it in game five. I mean, the offense just went dry for that entire second quarter. Anytime LeBron would leave the court, 
it was completely hopeless. Schroeder can't even, you know, make a basket the entire game. But it also shows his impact on the defensive end, too. I mean, guys like Marcus Gasol and, and Andre Drummond, they're not the quickest laterally, right? And you can kind of get by them, go to the basket. You can kind of put them in a space and make them work. And Anthony Davis has done a great job covering for them, you know, when he was healthy during the series. You take away that security blanket, and some of those guys, those big guys are getting exposed defensively, and, and the baskets were coming really, really easy for Phoenix in game five. So, you know, that's one of those games where it's not even like you can have a list of adjustments, right? The adjustment is like everyone has to play way better in game six. If they don't, they're stuck, right? Or, you know, Phoenix has to completely look shell-shocked, sort of like they did in game three, their first taste of the you know being on the road during the playoffs where the Lakers handled them pretty easily and it got a little bit testy at the end of that game. But, um, you know, I'm a little bit nervous. I mean, LeBron leaving the bench early, uh, you know, LeBron kind of just, you know, checking out during his post-game interview saying, you know, look, you know, we just got our butts kicked. I mean, all those things are red flags, I think, if you're a Lakers fan. And, uh, you know, to me, even if they were to survive this series, I think the warts have kind of come to the surface. The ability to keep those stars healthy is just a gigantic question mark. And I think when you're looking at Miami going out early, Boston going out early, and now the Lakers struggling, it kind of goes back to that post-bubble hangover again, doesn't it, of, of these teams that – didn't really get a real offseason to recharge, have finally made it to the playoffs, and and maybe they're not getting to sixth gear. So kind of looking forward, because uh, before this series, I thought whoever won this between the Suns and Lakers would go on to the to the finals. Do you still see that, or do you think it's going to be uh, someone else out of the Western Conference? Well, look, I mean, after the Lakers, it was a really, really balanced field, and I was giving them the benefit of the doubt because they're the defending champions. They have kind of, you know, arguably the two best players in the conference, at least playoff players. But, um, you know, I think that Phoenix is still beatable. I mean, the Lakers showed it. Their their ceiling is not the highest of these groups. It's not to say that they're a regular season team, but, uh, you know, I, I think that they were pretty much maxing out their potential during the regular season. I like, um, I think that Utah and Denver both are teams that, you know, potentially have higher offensive ceilings and then are going to be able to get by on defense. So to me, the the whole thing is opening up really nicely for the Jazz. You know, everybody wanted to discount them all year long. Um, and now they're in a situation where, okay, they stumbled in game one against Memphis and everybody, you know, all the boo birds came back around, right? But they've been taking care of business since then. And, uh, you know, they're looking at a second round matchup, you know, potentially with the Clippers who, you know, they've adjusted very nicely against Dallas. Uh, but still, you know, the first couple of games there, they were kind of hard to trust as well. Uh, and I think that Utah matches up much better with uh, with the Clippers than Dallas does. So, you know, look, the door is open. We shouldn't forget about the Clippers either, though. You know, they had a really nice adjustment in the middle of this series to go to more small ball, to kind of exploit Chris Tapp's Porzingis and, uh, you know, just have better individual matchups defensively against Luka. And it's been working, you know, and, and nothing was working right those first two games. And now everything's working right for them. So it could be this kind of situation where the Anthony Davis injury not only, you know, turned the Lakers season upside down, but you know it might have turned that Clippers season upside down, too, because the toughest guy for the Clippers to match up with in the entire postseason to me is actually Anthony Davis. Right. Like they've got the wings for LeBron. They've got um, some bodies to throw on Giannis. Uh, you know, they've got, again, the wings to use with, with Kevin Durant if they were to get to the finals against the Nets. And they've even got big bodies to use against Embiid, you know, if, if they were going to face the Sixers. But the toughest guy was Anthony Davis from a versatility standpoint. The Clippers just really haven't gotten much from Serge Ibaka. And now potentially he's out of their equation. They don't have to worry about him. It's, it's pretty wild how quickly the entire landscape in the West has changed here 
uh, because of that one injury. So speaking of the Clippers and Mavericks series, this is this is some of the craziest things I've seen in a series. Usually it's series doesn't start until you lose at home, but it's really now series doesn't start until you win at home. Uh, with the splits uh, 2-2, game five, obviously a very pivotal game. As you mentioned, Ty Lue made some great adjustments, obviously going with the small ball, also uh, utilizing Kawhi in guard pick and rolls, which uh, Porzingis is, at this point, his body is evident that it just can't hold up in those situations. Uh, even if his mind reacts, it doesn't matter. His body doesn't react at the same time as his mind. Uh, I really think whoever wins tonight's contest uh, is going, you know, to win the series. Uh, Dallas, despite, you know, shooting north of 40%, uh, I believe in game three, they still lost that by double digits. Next game, Luca had, uh, to me, I, I might be wrong, but to me it sounds like some kind of like nerve damage or something where he said he felt pain going from his neck down to his left arm. You know, score 19 or 16 points. No one else could score with him. Obviously, we're going to lose there. I think they only scored like 80 points uh, in uh, game four. Uh, but it sounds like you still have the Clips, you know, going on to win. It seemed like a lot of national uh, NBA writers had the Clips in five or four. Uh, obviously, it's going a little a bit uh, further here. But do you think it's going to go seven or do you think the, the Clips ended in six? I mean, to me, if Luka's not right, this thing's going to be over in six. Um that's a big if, but he did not look great. And the comments coming from Rick Carlisle didn't sound particularly optimistic. Um, they just don't have anyone to do to step up and do the things that Luca does, right? And I think that's where it goes back to Dallas's long-term picture of how do you build around this guy. They're going to need another ball handler at some point, another playmaking guy. As great as Luca is, I mean, we've seen that model, the super high usage guard, you know, the Harden or the Westbrook approach in the past where obviously Luca's more efficient than Westbrook by a lot, and he's, he's on a similar plane with Harden or, or peak Harden from a few years ago. But if you put all that burden on one guy and anything goes wrong with him, well, then you're kind of dead in the water, and that's sort of the, the, how I look at Dallas. Now, I'm hoping that he's able to turn it back around because the most fun I've had all season long was watching games one and two where Luca's just dancing all over the Clippers and you know making them look terrible on their home court. It was just phenomenally entertaining. Uh, and, you know, he's he's laughing it up with the courtside celebrities and everything else. But, you know, I just worry at this point, you know, if, if he's not even close to 100 percent, then, you know, where is their scoring going to come from? And, you know, Tim Hardaway Jr. has done a nice job in this series, but he's streaky. Um, you know, if, if you're not sending two guys to Luka constantly, you've got more uh, you know defensive attention available to kind of limit Dallas's uh, supporting cast players. So, um, you know, as difficult as it is to trust the Clippers really in any way at this point, given their last couple of years of postseason success or really their entire franchise, I should say, um, you know, they're they're in the driver's seat right now. There's no no doubt about it. Yeah, it, it's just going to be amazing because obviously we know the Clippers have an extensive history of falling short, even when they're the front runners. Uh, it, it, it'll be amazing if they do pull off a zero two uh, comeback. I, I still Hold reservation there. Uh, part of me still thinks Dallas somehow gets it together. Or really, Carlisle makes a championship-level adjustment. It's just, man, with what Donnie Nelson, you know, the general manager of the Dallas Mavericks, provided Carlisle this year, it's it's a wonder if, if Carlisle can do anything with this roster. Well, I mean, his best option might be to just play Porzingis less, you know. And, you know, when you're taking your second highest-profile player off the court in big moments, that often – 
you know, puts a coach in kind of the hot seat territory or, you know, it gets, uh, you know, people looking at him if it doesn't work out. And it also potentially, you know, risks, you know, damaging that relationship with Porzingis going forward. So, yeah, it's not a not a fun spot to be in if you're Carlisle, because the answer to almost every one of his questions has just been Luca, 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 Luca. I mean, that's kind of, you know, solved them. And again, if he's not 100 percent and kind of operating and orchestrating like he was earlier in the series, I don't know where the other answers come from. Yeah, I think THJ averaged 24 points per game in the first two. And I mean, that's great. Like, I really didn't think the shooting was going to last uh, that long. But I mean, but it, it, it really hasn't dropped off as much. But as you said, when Luca was hurt or well, he's probably still hurt, uh, they just can't get anyone to create their own shot. Jalen Brunson's great driving to the rim. You know, he's, but he doesn't really have that good of a half court handle. It's more so just going downhill. So yeah, they're they're kind of stuck in the mud right now, and unless Luca just, I mean, it seems like Luca has to average like forty four, eight and eight for them to have a chance. And uh, either way, it'll be a, a monumental finish. It'll just be uh, pretty sad to see uh, Dallas without like that. And the craziest thing is like you know you rewind a week and we're thinking it's going to be LeBron versus Luca in the Western Conference Finals, and now you know who's it going to be? Uh, you know Donovan Mitchell versus uh, Nikola Jokic. I mean, or you know Rudy versus Jokic, or I mean, really any of those four teams have a shot at the conference finals, which, you know, to me, that's that could be a good thing. You know, it, it takes a while sometimes to adjust these narratives and these stories. I mean, you, you have your favorites coming into the season. And if they get dealt curveballs, like the Embiid injury here to me is a major curveball, right? Like I would think Philly would handle Atlanta in the second round very, very easily at full strength. But now it's like there's no guarantee. Like he's so important to what they do. You look at their on-off numbers with Embiid versus without. I mean, they're like a 500 team essentially without him this year, and and have been in years past too. Like that makes them ripe for the taking, uh, and it could set up you know Brooklyn and and Milwaukee potentially. Uh, the winner of that wins the East, right? So you know these things change quickly, but sometimes it's good to have the new blood, and, and there is a lot of new blood this year. I mean, Brooklyn's not a team that's really ever been in the mix, you know, the last 10 years. Um, Atlanta, same deal. I mean, New York had a nice little run. Maybe I shouldn't write them off, but I, I kind of already have mentally in my own mind. Uh, and in the West, there's a whole bunch of teams that could reach the finals for the first time, you know, in, in the last 15, 20 years, really. I mean, if you look at the the post-Jordan era, you know, Utah, uh, Denver, uh, Phoenix, and the Clippers, all those teams would be, uh, you know, in for the first time. So that's, uh, you know, to me, that you know, you never quite know what to expect. And I think some people will look at that and say, well, maybe there should be an asterisk. This is a weird season, so many injuries, you know, schedule was all off and all that kind of stuff. But I think sometimes we just need to embrace the change. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, everyone deals with adversity. Like you go to work and sometimes people don't show up and, you know, people get fired. I mean, asterisk thing, man, I, I kind of it kind of irritates me because I'm like, everyone's dealing with the same circumstance and, and somehow someone just succeeded in it. So it's not like you were put at a disadvantage. So, and I, and I know you, you don't really like, you know, discrediting people, especially like the Lakers last year, like as much as that Lakers squad was like a, a gun for hire kind of thing. I, you still got to give them respect and, and, and uh, the nod of approval because they won the championship in a very weird situation. But, uh, you were talking about Trey Young and the, and the Atlanta Hawks fan. So it brings us to the next topic. I really just can't get into this series, although the first game was very entertaining and there's a lot of drama surrounding it. I just, this has to be the most, and maybe it's disrespectful to them, but this might be the weakest 4-5 matchup that I've ever seen in the playoffs of the New York Knicks and the Atlanta Hawks. What do you think about the series? 
Look, I mean, Atlanta's starting to find themselves. They played much better at home than on the road, and that's not surprising because so many of their players are just inexperienced from a postseason standpoint, including Trey. Now, he didn't look inexperienced in game one when he's in that floater and, and making Spike Lee all upset, right? But overall, their team had a lot to prove. Even guys like Bogdan had to uh, you know, get their feet wet. They looked really comfortable and pretty good at home. You know, there, there's no way around that. I just think New York's not that talented, right? And I hear everyone say, oh, you know, the NBA is so much better when the Knicks are good. Look, the NBA is fine with or without the Knicks, okay? The Knicks are one out of 30 teams. Look, everyone gets really excited in the city of New York, and as they should. It was a year that nobody saw coming. This was a cute story team the whole way. I mean, come on. Like, they're way overachieved what their talent base was. You're not going to go anywhere with Derrick Rose and Julius Randle as your main guys. And Randall hit the wall really, really hard here in the postseason. So does that mean he's never going to be a playoff player? No. Um, was I surprised to see them kind of fall on their face? Not at all. You know, I picked the Hawks in this series. They're actually making it a look a little bit easier than I expected. And like I said, keep an eye on that Embiid injury because now you're looking ahead and saying, all right, well, if Atlanta's got a really strong offense and Capella doesn't really have to deal with a full strength Embiid, do they have enough defense to get by? You know, is Simmons and his free throw issues and shooting issues going to wind up, you know, coming back to haunt the Sixers? Tobias Harris had a really nice first round series against Washington so far, but it's Washington. Everybody's going to score against Washington. Tobias Harris has never done anything in the playoffs prior to this year. So what does he look like against slightly better competition in the Hawks? I don't know. I just think, uh, you know, I, I've started to try to draw a distinguishing line between the Hawks and the Knicks because I was with you coming into this series. I thought both teams weren't that great. And Atlanta has definitely risen to the occasion. Now the door's swinging wide open for them. Yeah, I the Julius Randle thing, I really thought he wasn't going to struggle because he excelled like very efficiently uh, against the Atlanta Hawks uh, in, the playoff, uh, in the regular season. Obviously, that doesn't always translate. Uh, but it's just... It's just weird seeing him struggling so bad against uh, a Hawks team. I just didn't that I thought didn't have any answers for him. Uh, D Rose has had some moments like like hitting uh, contested floaters in the lane and everything, but really they just don't have anyone to create for themselves. Which kind of brings me to like a, a small question: with New York reaching, you know, the fifth seed, or, or no, I'm sorry, the fourth seed, and like getting a home court advantage. Do you think uh, Dolan creeps his head out again and tries to uh, get the franchise to overspend on a player such as maybe like DeMar DeRozan? Well, I saw him at the Hall of Fame. He was, you know, shaking a lot of hands, feeling great about life, Dolan was. You know, it's like he's the he's finally back from being the most hated man in New York. And, he, you know, he's feeling like uh, he's getting a little bit of love again. This year's free agency should revolve around the Knicks. You know, they're one of the, the premier organizations that actually has cap space. The only problem is there's not really any good players to spend it on. So I think what they try to do first is say, are there any disgruntled stars who are eyeing a trade? Because they've got some good pieces, including Randall. You could put together a pretty nice trade package and try to find yourself a centerpiece level player, right? But if that doesn't come to fruition, I don't really expect it would. Then they're going to be looking at guys like, yeah, you said DeRozan. Maybe Kyle Lowry would be an interesting fit for them. Maybe he can kind of you know do the Chris Paul and Phoenix uh, experience for the Knicks for a year or two. But I think if I were them, I would be trying to keep mostly flexible here in the next couple of years because you do have some pretty good free agency classes coming up, including in 2022, and you're going to be a destination. I mean, you've taken a step forward. You've got to walk before you can run. The Knicks have definitely walked this year, and that's that's big because they've been kind of on their knees crawling for more than a decade at this point. So they're starting to get going in the right direction. Uh, I would just 
personally, if I were them, I would not try to blow my uh, entire shot here this summer on like a second or third tier star who's not really going to move the needle. Yeah, I, and you know what? I, I think with Leon Rose and everybody there, I, I somehow believe that the Knicks will finally stop chasing after that shiny toy. I think this might be the year, except sometimes when you succeed too early, maybe as the the Mavs did last year with KP and everything, you kind of settle in with the roster that you have, even though you probably would be better off sacrificing a little bit short-term to get better long-term. So part of me still thinks uh, New York is going to go out and, and try to swing some big deals. Uh, before we get out of here, Ben, I know you're a busy man. Once again, I really do appreciate you coming in. It wouldn't be a Ben Golliver featured podcast if we didn't talk about the Milwaukee Bucks. And I know this is disrespectful to, to everybody else in the Eastern Conference, but at the same time, it's just inevitable, man. It's like waking up in the morning. It's like the sun setting. I really do believe it's going to be between Milwaukee Bucks or the Brooklyn Nets to, to go to the championship game and possibly win it all. So please tell me, why does that series like have so much championship implications? And why will one of those teams win the championship? Well, I think that they're the two favorites to come out of the East for sure. We want to see how the West shakes out, but I'm with you. I mean, if, if the Lakers are no longer you know, that team that's kind of in position, then I do think it does favor these Eastern Conference teams because the field is weaker. That conference finals matchup will probably be a little bit easier. And both those teams are really good. I mean, you look at Brooklyn, they made very, very light work of Boston. Their offense was off the charts, and the Stars looked like they had uh, spent all season playing together, even though they didn't. With Milwaukee, it was all about defense and rebounding and then enough shooting and scoring around Giannis to keep things really well balanced. The Bucks actually had the most dominant first-round series performance by the stats of any team in the playoffs. They didn't get a lot of attention, even though they completely you know, got revenge in cold, ruthless, calculating fashion and just you know, sent the heat home almost immediately. Um, I think that um, you know the, the trick for them is going to be a much different matchup going from Miami to Brooklyn because Miami, so much of what they wanted to do was kind of going towards the basket with Jimmy and Bam, and Brooklyn's just so much more comfortable on the perimeter, and, and they're going to be able to have you know one-on-one stuff. They're going to just test those big lineups with Brooke Lopez in a lot of different ways that uh, you know Miami's personnel just didn't really test the Bucks. So um, at this point, I actually have the Nets winning that series, but I think it's going to be arguably the best showdown of the entire um, the entire playoff bracket at this point. And it's fascinating because you've got Giannis versus KD, where you've got like the smooth shooting guy versus the ultra physical guy. You've got the big city, you know, uh, ring chasing super team versus the small town loyal resigned to stick with the team, you know, super max contract in Giannis. You've got, uh, you know, all offense from Brooklyn and a really stout defense from Milwaukee so far during the postseason. And then you've got this coach in Bud who needs to get over the hump. And then you've got a rookie coach in Steve Nash who's never been there before. So just the contrast between these two organizations are really, really interesting. To me, an underrated story for this series is Dante DiVincenzo going out with the ankle injury. Uh, They were going to need all hands on deck guarding Harden. Kyrie Irving, even Joe Harris. I mean, they they just keep coming at you with guards, Brooklyn does. And not having him puts a lot of pressure on Pat Connaughton, who, you know, he's never been a guy you really, really want to lean on too heavily. And then it also just says, look, Bryn Forbes, you've got to be red hot like you were in game two and game four against Miami. Like you really have to provide that punch in that spot because he's not really a defensive player either. So to me, I think I circled that that possible matchup as something that could be uh, you know difficult for the the Bucks to get over. 
but I can't wait for this series. I mean, I've been waiting for it ever since the Harden trade because don't forget Giannis and Harden talked some trash at All-Star game a couple weeks ago too, or a couple years ago too. There's all sorts of layers to this and uh, you know they were vying for MVP awards and everything else. So, it should be a really really good one. Uh well, you are like the Don King of selling uh NBA series cuz I'm all the way in on that. Uh I will I will be honest here. I did pick the Bucks to win a championship in 6 games before the season started. And I was pretty confident that they probably still could do that. But then, as weird as it sounds, Dante DiVincenzo thing kind of blew the air out of the tires for me because although he's not like an elite defender or anything, it's just like you said, it's about having bodies. And let's be honest, as cool as it was to see Forbes flame the heat, that doesn't matter because that's not what they're going to need against the Nets. So uh, I, you probably sold me on the Nets winning, but I still think Giannis uh, – and uh, Middleton and Holiday make some noise. Well, look at it this way. I mean, look, these are injury Dante rather than Anthony Davis, right? Or Jamal Murray. You know, it's like everybody's injured right now. So it's like if you're a Bucks fan and you're saying, "Hey, I picked the Bucks," like you know, the, the good thing is like it's a it's a hit, but it's not a uh, you know one of these gigantic body blows that some of these other teams are taking right now. Or a Luca, for that example, with, with Dallas, we were talking about earlier. So. I think my message to Milwaukee fans was it, it could be a lot worse, right? And uh, you're playing with much better chemistry and cohesion um, than they did last year. Also, Coach Bud's playing his stars more. You know, Giannis playing 45 minutes in game one against Miami. I love to see that. It's finally, you know, getting through to Bud that, hey, guess what? If you have your best player on the court and more actively involved defensively, good things are going to happen. Um, and that's exactly how it played out. Yeah, my, my main wish is to see Giannis at the five and just rolling to the rim and spamming the Nets because I don't think they really have an answer for that. They're going to they're gonna play Tucker a lot more than Lopez. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say they're going to play Tucker more than Lopez, I think, in this next series. Um, but, you know, they were able to have a lot of success going big. And so, you know, I think for Lopez, you know, he's always the guy people want to take off the court. And I would just at least give him like a hat tip for how he did against Miami, right, uh, before we rush him out of here. True. True. I just, I guess that's my, my fantasy thing is just some players just hate playing the five, but like, you know, like AD, but it's just, obviously you're much better at the position. And I know the Bucks like to also, you know, have, um, Giannis trade at, you know, at the top, but I just, I just think the Nets don't really have much of an answer for that. But anyways, Ben, uh, I just want to say, I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy guy, so I don't want to keep you too long. But uh, I do want to give you another opportunity to plug your book away or whatever else you have in the pipeline. So, uh, Ben, plug away, my man. Yeah, no, it's called Bubble Ball Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. It's, you know, you can get it anywhere, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you get your books. It's a passion project for me. You know, I spent almost three months straight writing this thing after I got out of the bubble. And uh, it's just been really fun to hear from people all over the world, basketball fans who have kind of dove in and, and relive some of those memories. And then, you know, for the upcoming playoffs that we're in right now, Everything's at WashingtonPost.com slash sports. And, and I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver and, and Twitter at Ben Golver. And, and I'm about to be crisscrossing the country again here for the next couple of months covering these series. And hopefully I'll get up to Milwaukee and, uh, and Brooklyn here pretty soon as well. So I think this is the most exciting time of the year for me. And I just, uh, you know, I'm hoping all your listeners will ride along uh, with me. Uh, well, again, thanks, Ben. Uh, I wish my co-host uh, Zeke was here, but he had a job interview. So I told him, hey, man, it's probably a little bit more important than than being on the podcast today. So uh, he definitely was here in spirit. But uh, to all my co- uh, all the Culture Surfer listeners, don't forget, rate, review, tell me my takes are bad, tell me I'm stupid for thinking the Bucks have a chance against the Nets, 
you know, any constructive criticism or just if you want to give us a four or five star rating, it's fine. Uh, everyone have a lovely uh, evening. Also, please, if you're not vaccinated, please wear your mask. And hey, if you're going to go to an NBA game, don't disrespect the players. Have a wonderful day.